Welcome into Inside the Pylon, the podcast for Friday, March 11th. Chuck Zada, Mark Schofield, and a whole bunch of glossary terms that we're itching to get to today, actually, from the Inside the Pylon glossary. We don't actually know how many we're going to get through, uh, so it's kind of a mystery to us, just as it is going to be a mystery to you. Uh, but Mark, it's been a little while since we've talked glossary on the podcast. It has. We've been, you know, trying to get wrapped up with draft stuff. Um, had some great guests, a nice little run of guests, uh, past couple of shows, including Mitchell Schwartz, uh, current, you know, free agent offensive lineman to break down offensive line play and the intricacies there. But we figured we'd, you know, take some time here and get caught up in what we've been putting up on the website. Yeah. And, and so with it being really prime season for, free agency and NFL roster moves, we figured that rather than focus on some of the on-field uh, topics that are in the inside the pylon glossary, we said, you know what? We've got plenty that relate to off-the-field issues. Why don't we start talking about those? And so I figure, Mark, a good place to start here is uh, with the term shadow roster. Okay, And for those of you who aren't familiar with the term, shadow roster refers to players uh, who aren't officially on an NFL roster or a practice squad, but maybe have been on one of those two uh, groups throughout the season at some point and maybe have fallen off due to injury or other players becoming healthy, aren't on an NFL team now, but are still kind of almost on call in the event of an injury to be called back to the team and sign a new contract there. Yeah, and it's... It's an interesting way that teams, particularly head coaches, can kind of not really game the system, but basically have guys that are almost, as you could say, on call that they know are familiar with the scheme, familiar with you know what, what the offensive playbook, the defensive playbook. I mean, a great, great example of this from New England is Ross Ventrone. Signed and re-signed, what, like four times, I think, in, in one season at one yeah, point? Yeah, I'm going to look that up. But, I mean, there's a guy that New England would sign him. They keep him around for a week, then release him. Then if they needed depth, they needed special teams, something, they'd sign him again. And it, it seems to me that when we talk about these players, obviously, look, you're not talking about guys who are necessarily uh, difference makers on offense or defense, just because those people... If they did end up off an NFL roster, even just for a week, whether it's due to injury or whatever it may be, those types of players would be picked up off waivers in a heartbeat. You'd have those guys signed so quickly, you wouldn't be able to get them back. These might be guys who aren't necessarily uh, you know, major contributors on either of those areas, or necessarily even a major contributor on special teams, but we're talking about depth, You know, whether it is a sixth receiver that a team likes but can't carry. Uh, whether it is an eighth offensive lineman, an extra punt gunner, whatever it may be, those are the types of players that we're talking about. And, you know, the, quite frankly, when you look at NFL rosters, you know, you see so many teams that have a ton of top end talent, but when you get down and look at the depth of players, not just, you know, 43 through 46 on the active roster, but you also start looking at that practice squad because you know you're going to have to tap it over the course of the year. That's where you start to really see, I think, a lot of the, the intricacies of roster management come in because you're going to have injuries in a season, sometimes an awful lot of them. And it's not necessarily how strong you are, players 1 to 10 or 10 to 15. It's about that back end sometimes because your 1 to 10 and 10 to 15 may end up being hurt. 
I got some Ross Ventro numbers, and I wasn't going to bring this up, but they're blowing my mind, so I, I think it's worth <laughs> talking about, okay? And this this is a story from the Boston Herald from October of this of 2015, okay? Okay. And this was when he rejoined the Patriots practice squad in October, so there might have been a few more transactions after this, but when he signed with the Patriots to their practice squad in October of 2015, 15. It was his 30th transaction between Ventrone and the Patriots, okay? It was his 14th sign-in with the Patriots. He had been released 11 times and promoted from the practice squad to the active roster five times. His busiest year with the Patriots was 2011 when he was signed by them nine times, then cut eight times, and promoted five times for a total of 22 transactions. That was 2011, you said? Yeah, yeah. Signed nine times, cut eight times, promoted to the active roster five times. Okay, so if my math is right in 11 then, if he signed nine but only cut eight, that means he at least ended the season on the roster, right? If he's being, if he signed more often than he's cut, that's got to be the case, right? That makes sense to me. I mean, I'm no math major, but that would seem to make sense. So right? I look at this, and the first, my first thought is we need to get Jason from over the cap in to try to figure out how much... Ross has actually earned over the course of his career. <laughs> Just because. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. I mean, you, you look at this and you're sitting there going, all right, so we got three game checks this year. We got a practice squad game check here. Two more practice squad. It's, you know, you're trying to add this up. This isn't somewhere that you can just go on pro football reference and say, oh, yeah, he had a million dollar contract that year. It's, you know, you're trying to figure this out. And it's, again, here we are, 2015. And you know, we're five years out, six years from uh, from Ross's first season in 2010, and still signing new contracts with the Patriots. Yeah, that's that's unbelievable. It's impressive, and yeah, and, and that's the kind of player who look. Obviously, this is I think an extreme example. There aren't. I'm trying to think if there's anyone else in my memory that. I've seen move back and forth quite as much. There's no one who's coming to mind for me. Do you have any anyone who you've seen move around quite this much? I really don't off the top of my head. I'm trying to look right now. But, I mean, he just stands out more than anybody, I think, because of the sheer volume. You know, it's not like he was, like, with them, then cut, then resigned. you know, later in the season. It was, like, with them, cut, with them, cut. Like, it was every other week. It, it really did, especially – during that uh, 2011 season, and I actually just went back and I pulled up the uh, the transaction list for the Patriots. Then, so we can actually you can go go through it, and you're literally sitting there, and you know you're seeing situations where it's nine twenty four eleven signed Ross Ventrone to the fifty three man roster, ten four eleven signed Ross Ventrone to the practice squad, ten eight signed to the fifty three man roster from the practice squad. Uh, you go a couple weeks later here. And it is 10 or 11 3. Patriots release Ross Ventrone. You go forward a little bit more. 11 17. Two weeks later, Ross Ventrone signed to the practice squad. A week after that, 11 21, Ross Ventrone signed from the practice squad to the 50 man, three man roster. And, you know, you're just going back and forth pretty much. Oh, here's another one. 12 uh, 17, Ross Ventrone. This is how confusing it is. Signed again to the 53-man roster. It's just going back and forth. And that is, again, it's an extreme case, but that's what we talk about when we're talking about shadow roster. It's those players that are a little bit fringy, but still are relied on by teams for that deep depth in order to make sure uh, you know, that you're not 
you know, essentially uh, losing out talent on the back end of the roster. And by the way, using that phrase deep depth, that's something that Harry Stamper would be very, very oh, man. proud he would of. Love that. I mean, he's he's looking down right now and smiling at us as we're, you know, recording this episode in the Harry Stamper studio. He's he's up there smiling. Yeah, he's he's looking down on us from uh, that little piece of dotty that he's still trapped on right now. It's yeah. You know. Sad, but it's it's one of those touching things. Let's talk about uh, another term relating to uh, NFL roster management here. Uh, this is the term pro personnel director. Okay, uh, and it, you know with NFL franchises, it gets a little confusing sometimes because you have you know director of uh, player personnel, you have pro personnel director, you have uh, director of football operations, and a lot of times I know people can sit there and say, well, what do these actually mean? And I can tell you that people sit there and do that because there have been times when I have sat there and done it. Uh, Pro personnel director, what it is, uh, it is the person who is responsible for the evaluation of players who no longer have college eligibility. So think of it as essentially the scouting director for players who are already in the NFL, the AFL, the CFL anyone in those situations and he generally has a staff usually between one and four scouts under him uh, that he can delegate and send to different games and different facilities but you know this is uh, you know it's, it's a guy who is responsible for developing those weekly scouting reports that you see that uh, that teams prepare in order to uh, scout their next opponents as well as scouting potential free agents trade targets things like that so a lot of responsibility for this guy yeah, a ton of responsibility. And I think at least in season, the biggest role that this individual has are those advanced scouting reports where you're looking at, okay, we're playing Tennessee this week. Here's what they do on offense. Here's what they do on defense. I mean, you've, you're basically putting together the game plan for that week or at least playing a huge role in doing that. And any time you get a chance to talk about football scouting methods, that great, like the scouting Bible written by Steve Belichick, Coach Belichick's father. Yep. It's a good time to do that so we can plug that book, which you can still get on Amazon, and I'd recommend people buy it because it is basically like the scouting Bible, and it gets into what these individuals are trying to put together from week to week. When did you first uh, read that? Oh, man. Like, how old were you when you read it? I mean, it was recent, to be honest. I mean, mostly because I didn't really know until like eight years ago or so that Bill Belichick's dad wrote that. Yep. So, you know, probably around 2003, 2004 during that run. Okay. So, yeah, you're talking back kind of in that uh, that three championship run somewhere around there. Where, you know, you're learning more about Belichick's dad and paying more attention to that relationship and Belichick's father's, you know, deep involvement in the game. And you're like, oh, you know, he wrote a book. I should pick this up. And it's a it's a great read. Yeah, and it's uh, you know we've seen a number of uh, just getting back to the uh, the glossary term here, pro personnel director. You've seen a number of them in recent years uh, move up and essentially uh, become then uh, essentially GMs for a number of teams. Actually, Dave Gettleman in Carolina, 
Uh, Bob Quinn in Detroit have both earned promotions up into that role now, essentially making full decisions there. So this is someone who, in addition to uh, you know those in-season uh, advanced scouting reports, also doing a lot of work for potential waiver acquisitions, uh, looking at potential free agents in the offseason, working with the GM and the scouting staff there to come up with uh, a list of potential targets. And so you can see why this might be a role where someone essentially ends up being groomed in this role to eventually become a GM. It's one of a number of different ways uh, that you can move up into that role when it's all said and done. I think, you know, Mark, as you touched on, though, in season, those advanced scouting reports, and we talked with, uh, as you said, Mitchell Schwartz earlier this uh, week, you know, talking about the scouting work that they do. And this is, you know, another piece of that in addition to the film. You know, you may come in, or a, sc- a pro personnel director may come in and say, look, here's uh, the percentage of times that they blitz out of this formation, and here's where the blitzes come from, just to give you uh, some of the numbers for players who may be a little bit more numbers-oriented. Yeah, um, that's that's a good point. And I think kind of touching back a little bit on that, you know, potential move to general manager, you can see why that would make sense when you think about what these guys are looking at. They're looking at potential free agents. They're looking at, you know, the tendencies, the, you know, blitz indicators from every linebacker that that offense might face this year. So you know which guys can do what in terms of scheme, in terms of fit, how they might possibly fit on your roster. And you can start to see how a person in this role could build out in their minds how to construct a team. It just, it seems to make a lot more sense. That sort of, you know, a person that's looking at film all the time, trying to break down tendencies, trying to look at what a team might do, what players might do well, what roles they might not be suited for. Maybe moving to GM because it makes a lot of sense when they're trying to fill out a roster, fill out that back end of the 46 to 53, fill out that shadow roster, for example. So here's here's a question for you. Let's say that you are an owner. I'm going to project you forward after ITP has made you billions of dollars. That's billions with a B, trace commas, the whole deal here. Talk to me if you're going to try to find a GM. Are you looking at a guy coming from the pro side of things, or are you looking at a guy with a more traditional college scouting background? I mean, that's a tough call. I, I mean, it would. I'm really giving you a franchise. On- no, no, no. It doesn't depend which. What side do you? If you had to place your your eggs in one basket, all things being equal, which side? I guess I would put it more on the pro side, and. I could see the arguments either way, but really what I want, because you think about, you miss the the draft, you miss so much in the draft, okay? It's hard to get these picks right. You're dealing with 21, 22, 23-year-old kids, um, scheme fit, all that stuff, other external factors that might not come into play that or might play a huge role in whether that person pans out or not. When you're looking at a guy that's been scouting and evaluating potential free agents, advanced scouting work, things like that, you're dealing with known commodities. So you know what these players are capable of doing. They're known commodities that have stuck around in the league at least for a year or two. So you want to be able to hit on all of those decisions. I mean, look at what's been going down in Philly the past couple of days. They have basically erased the Chip Kelly Yep, talent influx from the face of that franchise to start over, which goes to show you when you miss on those moves, when bringing in free agents, it can set a team back. Whereas if you miss on a draft class with a couple of picks, that might not cause a total like meltdown and rebuild. So I want somebody that's 
on the the moves that you have to nail that can be experienced and nail those moves. See, that was that was kind of my first thought as well. Is is just the the potential for really just absolutely destroying yourself at this point is it's 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 readily apparent through free agency because it's so easy and you, you've seen it with again you mentioned philly in recent years uh we've seen it just with with big free agent deals that get signed where it's you know the money is just poorly spent for one reason or another that was my first thought but i circled back because you know i, I was i was sitting there and i was going well yeah that makes sense but the the teams that are really able to build themselves into sustainable long-term great franchises they do it through the draft and you know i i look at a franchise like uh pittsburgh okay which for whatever reason seems to just churn out wide receivers left and right same with green bay you know it's i don't know what it is that they do but they they find wide receivers that are able to play in their scheme and, and do what they need at low cost there so they can spend money elsewhere. You go and you look at uh, what Seattle did for uh, three or four years under Pete Carroll with the drafting that they did and how they got to the point where they can't afford that talent now because they drafted so well. And I almost wonder if that's... I think that's where I would go instead. And it's, it's just because I think you can... As much of a crapshoot as the draft is... I hate I, I, I would still make that my first priority just because almost because I feel like I could I could figure the other side out because as you said they're more known commodities. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean that makes sense. I just look at it as I mean, do you in roster construction, when you're really drafting that day those day three guys, and yeah, you you can find diamonds there. All kickers. All kickers. I mean, see, then you think about day three of the draft, and I'm I'm flashing back to when we had Jeff Risden on from the Shrine game, and he was talking about how these guys that are down here in St. Petersburg are guys that you're going to see drafted on day three. Yep. And he also mentioned that you know some team or a couple of teams are going to be able to improve their franchises with what they do on day three. Well, and, and that's where, where I kind of look at this is if on day three, if I'm looking at that – if I can find just one or two players there that work for me, that's all that you need. And all you need is really, if, if you have one that becomes a capable NFL starter from those picks, okay, you're, you're talking about a guy who, you know, a guy who can start for you for four, five, six years. As long as you take care of your business in rounds one through three, you've done your job then. If you're coming away each draft with four quality players, that you can walk away from. And and look, not to say that you're going to see that every draft. You may see two one draft and six the next. But if you can average four quality players each year so that you know you get into a cycle where you say, okay, every four years I've got 16 players that I know I can plug in as starters and I need to find five to six in free agency that I can deal with, that's how I kind of look at building things. And, and that's, that's kind of, that's, I guess that's my perspective there. So I don't know. I mean, is the simple answer here, have, an, have a general manager who's good at one and get an assistant general manager who's good at the other? Probably, but I didn't give you that option, did I? No, you didn't <laughs> give me that option, but, yeah. you know, that's, that's, you know, that's probably it. Yeah, that's, I mean, look, in, in any situation, you're going to want balance. So right. um, let's, uh, we got a couple minutes left here. Let's do a quick, uh, quick Twitter question. This one Fantastic. comes from uh, Bill Ormond. 
And uh, his question is, what are the difficulties and changes in transition between a 4-3 DE switching into a predominantly 3-4 scheme? Uh, and I guess there's two ways to look at this, Mark. The first is if that defensive end is going to put on some weight and try to become a 3-4. And the second is if you're going to have him instead playing in space, kind of in a uh, still pass rushing role, but just looking a little bit different from his alignment. Yeah, I mean that's that's the big difference. Is he going to stay, you know, with his hand on the ground and play defensive end and try to go down to like say you're, you know, four uh, three defensive end? Are you going to then go into a three four and bulk up, and try to be a two gap player, or are you going to stand upright? Yeah, and there's there's not many guys I can think of that would be able to make that transition from four three end to three four end, just because a lot of those guys just don't have the bulk and the height to be able to do that in that two-gap scheme, even though, you know, as Mitchell said, there aren't a ton of teams these days that are running that traditional 3-4 two-gap right. anymore. But, you know, if, if you are, you're talking about a guy going from, instead of using first-step quickness off the ball to try to, you know, beat his man or just hold one gap and seal the edge there, you're talking about a guy essentially playing with his hands a lot more just so that he can read both gaps, give himself a little bit more space and be able to make plays or you know, essentially give his linebackers a clean lane to come in there. So it's it's a very different skill set if you're talking about that. I'd probably feel more comfortable dropping a guy like that into uh, you know an outside backer role in a three four scheme and still letting him rush the passer. Just you know whether it's you know standing up or you know in a three point stance, still letting him use the same skill set a little more often. Yeah, now I wonder if the roadmap is something that we've seen the past two years in Oakland from Khalil Mack, who is an outside linebacker at the University of Buffalo, but, you know, basically plays defensive end for them now because you see so many four-man fronts because, you know, we see so much 11 personnel. I mean, that's basically the dominant personnel package in yep. the league right now. So, so many defense are basically treating their four-two-five nickel as almost their base defense. Yeah, it's so you take a take a guy like Mac and basically make him just an you know an out, a defensive end. Yeah, I mean you've got a lot. Most teams at this point they're playing in sub packages, if not more often than you know what what would traditionally be a base defense. Pretty close to it. You know, it's yeah. it's just what you see at this point. I think there are some teams that I think are in sub packages like seventy percent of the time. I'll have to pull up the stats, but it's uh, you know it's. It's not a, a, the same defense that you saw in the 90s and the 80s. It's it's very different. As you said, you see a lot of 11 personnel right now, and that's just kind of the necessity when you have that type of speed on the field. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's the nature of the beast. So uh, what else we got? I think I think that's about it. That's what we got? Yeah, I think, I think we're cooked. How do you feel about that? Pretty good show. Pretty solid show. Um, Ra- rated on a scale of 1 to 10. What do you give it? I'm going to give it an 8. You know, I was a little, I was a little, I was a little low energy. I think I was a little low energy on this one. I think you know, if I'm, if I'm going to put on my Donald Trump hat, I'm going to say I was a little low energy for this show. Whatever you got to do to get through the day, Jeb. All right. You know, please clap. <laughs> That's all we got, folks. We'll see you tomorrow. Yeah.